Hello, Liturgy Guys listeners. This is Michael Coy of Ex Corde at Benedictine College. We are the Liturgy Guys' new producers and editors, and we have another great episode for you. But did you know this is also a video episode? That's right, the latest two episodes of the Liturgy Guys, Are You a Victim at Mass? and Liturgy Quiz Part 8, were recorded in front of a live studio audience right here at Benedictine College. You can see these videos by visiting Ex Corde on Facebook, YouTube, and at excorde.org. All those links are in the description. So without further ado, the latest episode of The Liturgy Guys. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. I'm Dennis McNamara. I'm the director of the Center for Beauty and Culture and uh, associate professor here at Benedictine College. To my right is Chris Carstens, the director of the Worship Sacred Worship Office in La Crosse and the editor Divine of the Adoramus Bulletin. And then Jesse Weiler, the director of the Liturgical Institute in Mundelein, Illinois. And now we get to take a quiz. Chris, as you may know, publishes something called the Adoramus Bulletin, which is more or less free. So if you're interested in liturgy, what is it, once a month or so? Once every two months? Comes yeah. Out. yeah. It's, it's kind of a newspaper format thing with great articles, answers, liturgical questions. And all you have to do is go to autoramus.org and uh, sign up. And every so often he does a quiz. And it hasn't been published yet, so we haven't seen the answers. So Jesse and I are going to compete. Yeah. I just for, naturally know the answers. Oh, we joke, they don't even read <laughs> a, the paper anyway, the bulletin anyway, so it doesn't matter. Every time we do a that's quiz, That's true. I like, do a podcast for you. For yeah. yeah, that's true. That's yeah. right. So okay. now I teach this stuff for a living, and uh, it would really be really bad if Ooh, I yeah. lost. Be good. So, so we've I, got the Lakers over here at University of St. Mary of the Lake. Jesse is representing the Lakers. And, and the Dennis Ravens. representing the Ravens. Yeah! Okay. Okay. Home court Ooh. advantage right Yeah, here. yeah, we'll see how that goes for it. Yeah. All right, so this is a quiz. Well, uh, th- I know. <laughs> hey, okay. this, is, uh, meant, this is a quiz that's meant to help us prepare for and celebrate the upcoming Advent and Christmas seasons. All right, so that's the, uh, the subject of the quiz. Now, there's 10 questions. Some are multiple choice. Some are true and false. One of them's an open-ended thing. Um, how this is going to work is each of our contestants here will have one lifeline, so you can you can solicit uh, assistance from somebody in uh, the audience tonight, and who will win a fabulous prize. Can I phone a friend, and can that friend be you? No, <laughs> no, no. I don't even have a. I left my flip phone at home, Jesse. <laughs> What about your flip-flops? <laughs> no. Chris lives kind of off the grid technologically-wise. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and let's see, the other rule is I'm the final arbiter of what is right and wrong in this, all right? So I don't want to hear any complaining or whining about uh, the answers. Okay. All right, Jesse, you are the uh, visitor. Do you elect to uh, receive or uh, defer? You're going to kick. All right, Jesse, uh, Dennis, mm. here is question number one. The principal reason that Christmas is celebrated on December 25th is A, this date was determined by the Council of Nicaea in 325. B, Jesus was born on December 25th. C, the early church was trying to combat the pagan feast of the Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun that fell on December 25th. Or D, 
Jesus died nine months earlier. Receive. I want to receive. <laughs> <laughs> wow, just trying to remember all of these. Okay, I so know. the Roman Feast of the Unconquered Sun, I know, was something in the Roman Empire. They saw the days getting shorter and shorter and shorter, and they thought the sun was going to go out, but then it didn't start getting longer. So this was a thing of their sun god. Now, people argue whether or not that's why the Christians put it there. Because I know many people say yes, because the shortest day of the year is corresponding with the birth of Christ, the light into the darkness of the world. I like that example, but, but. The scholars don't agree. Mm. So you said the primary reason? The principal reason, yeah. Well, it's not. Because a lot of these things kind of blend. But what's the, if you could pinpoint one of those, what would your answer be? Mm-hmm. I'll go with the Sol Invictus thing. I'll no, do. that's wrong. Darn it. Uh, no. So the principal reason, and this is explained by Cardinal Raskner again in his uh, book, The uh, Spirit of the Liturgy. He says, quote, Astonishingly, the starting point for dating the birth of Christ was March 25th, because March 25th is more or less equivalent to 14 Nisan, the day of Passover, and Jesus is the Paschal Lamb who is sacrificed on 14 Nisan or close to March 25th. Now, uh, this is also considered, I mean, March 25th is like the most important calendar date out of the whole 365. This is also the day the chosen people believed was the creation of the world. Okay, and since Jesus is, so you look on your desk calendar, and you see March 25th, creation of the world day. Well, Jesus Happy is birthday, the, world. He's, he's created <laughs> through the Logos. Jesus is the new son of the new creation, hence his conception is March 25th. So March 25th originally celebrated both the death of Jesus and the conception of Jesus. Add nine months on to that, Dad, and you get... December, December 25th. 25th. So the best answer is D, because Jesus died nine months earlier. D really? for Dennis. D for Dennis. Okay. All right. Zero Better for me. Yeah, you keep okay, in score Jesse. here. Yeah, I'll All keep, right, Jesse. You can, you can trust me. Number, keep okay. So the I most I can, I can lose by is four. Great. All right. And number two, since Christmas is always celebrated each year on December 25th, when does Advent begin? Right, because it changes. Here's your options. A, the Thursday after Thanksgiving in the United States. B, the Sunday closest to the Feast of Andrew the Apostle. C, four weeks and four days prior to December 25th. D, it varies based upon the date of Easter and the weeks of ordinary time. B, that follow Easter. Andrew. That's right. That's right. Give him a, give him a ring. All wow. right. All right. Yeah, so there's a, uh, you have this red book called the Roman Missal, and in the beginning you have what's called the General Instruction of the Roman Missal, and you have another thing called the Universal Norms on the Liturgical Year and the Calendar. And that document says that Advent begins with First Vespers, or Evening Prayer 1, on the Sunday that falls on or closest to November 30th, which is the Feast of St. Andrew. So if uh, November 30th is a Wednesday, November 27th is the earliest Advent could begin. If it falls on a Thursday, December 3rd is the latest Advent could begin. This year it begins on November 28th. Okay, all right. What's well the done, score? Jesse. Good job. All right. I listened to the liturgy, guys, the so that's how I knew the answer to that one. Oh, it is. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know right. the Number one three, Dennis. Yes. This okay. is a true or false question. I'm starting to get nervous here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're behind right I now. Know. <laughs> okay. Uh, three, true or false, Advent the Advent season is a kind of mini Lent. 
Hmm. I've heard this discussed, whether or not Advent is a penitential season. Many people argue that it is. Not penitential in the sense of suffering for the sake of suffering, but to get yourself ready to receive Christ. So true. False. Darn it. <laughs> false. False. Yeah. I think so, it's false. <laughs> my reasoning isn't my reasoning good, and then I get it, it wrong is, anyway. It is right. Yeah. And so they're they're in some ways similar, and they're some ways not. They're similar because right, they both have they're both an increased time of prayer, of self denial, of penance, uh, and the rest. But their goals are completely different. So this same uh, universal norms on the general uh, year in the calendar says that Lent is a period of preparation to participate in the Paschal mystery of Jesus. That's its purpose. That is not the purpose of Advent. Advent, the same instruction says, has a twofold character. The first is to recall the first coming of Jesus in the flesh. The second is to look forward to the second coming of Christ, right? So as you might know, the, the readings on the first Sunday of Advent are always about the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and the sky will be darkened and the moon will not shine and the stars will fall from the heaven, which is incidentally the gospel reading for this next uh, Sunday. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Boy, yeah, now we don't have to go. This podcast was recorded <laughs> so, on November. So, so that's the first uh, Sunday. You don't get to the baby Jesus stuff until well into Advent because it's focusing on the second uh, coming. So, so Dennis, so I'm Advent, sorry about this. Does but Advent bookend the, the resurrection then? Is what? Before the Advent book ends everything. It's the beginning and the end. So it's the birth and then the second coming. Yeah, it is sort of. Yeah, yeah good. Um, so I'm sorry about that one. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you could make a good case it is a kind of a mini Lent, but I think uh, all in all, putting all in a balance, all in a balance, I think. Dennis, uh, I only think you were the half wrong there, is, okay? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I was 51 talking. 51% wrong. And, I was you know, talking about becoming a victim, and I'll be a victim here for Jesse today. <laughs> Oh, whining victim. Okay, <laughs> so number four, back to you, Jesse. This is a multiple choice uh, question. The, oh, this is a hard one, too. Uh, the See. Roman Missal, the lectionary, and the Liturgy of the Hours provide texts for each weekday of Advent all the way up until Friday of the third week of Advent, and then they stop. Okay. Why are there no more texts for Saturday? of the third week of Advent. Your, aunt, yeah, your I options just, are... I was just going to say, sorry. is this Jesse? a short sorry. essay? Sorry, that's a short essay. That's right. Well, okay. in the console, <laughs> I see it. Okay, here, here are the possible answers. A, Anibale Bunini. B, <laughs> B uh, the weekdays of Advent give way to more intense preparation for Christmas by this time, and it is then time to sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. C, Pius XII eliminated this day uh, of Advent when he revised the Holy Week liturgies in 1955. D, from the time of Pope Gregory the Great, reigned 590 to 604, as everybody knows, Saturday of the third week of Advent was set aside to observe one of the Ember Days. Well, I'm down to a 50-50 choice here, and I'm going to go with D. Ember days. No, 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 no. Am I wrong? You're wrong. You're wrong. Uh, the correct answer. <laughs> Annabelle Bonini. <laughs> no, good guess, Annabelle Bonini. No, so as you, some of you may know, Annabelle Bonini gets blamed for everything that happened bad after the council. Well, the, the option, the, what's the, you know what the answer is? Mm -mm. It's B. 
the weekdays of Advent give way to more intense uh, preparation for Christmas. So, uh, Boy, that the, was a hard question. It is, yeah. So the church, as you know, ranks her liturgical days, solemnities, feasts, memorials, optional memorials, and weekdays. But even weekdays have a certain hierarchy. And the weekdays from November, beginning with November, excuse me, December 17th are a special weekday, okay? And they give way, they, they surpass all other weekdays. It's impossible for there to be Saturday, if, if Advent began as early as it possibly could, December 17th would be Saturday of the third week. It's impossible for there to be the Saturday of the third week of Advent and it not be into these weekdays of special preparation that have begun with December 17th. Now, does that make sense? What about, yeah, but the O Come, O Come okay. Emmanuel, that so, tripped me up. So on December 17th, what happens is there's a set of um, antiphons. This would be the antiphon for uh, evening prayer and the gospel verse at Mass all begin with O. The, oh, the O so antiphons. For, yeah, the O antiphons, oh. which you may have heard of, begin then. So, for example, on uh, the 22nd, it's O King of all nations and keystone of the church, etc. And these O antiphons that begin with the 17th are the basis of the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Would you have gotten that right, that question right, or would you have got it wrong? Oh, I would have gotten that right for sure. <laughs> All right. <laughs> one to zero. <laughs> Jesse. Okay, we're up to what? Lead. Number uh, number five. This is uh, true and false. Good. I and false? True and false? I have a well, we'll see. 50-50 chance false. of tying the score. What kind of quiz is this? Hey, I, I'm the quiz master here, all right? True or false? <laughs> Just as during the Lenten season, the playing of the organ and musical instruments is allowed only in order to support the singing during Advent. Oh, gosh. I really want to tie Jesse because I'd be really feel bad if I lost to Jesse. Um, Don't forget, you all have thanks. a lifeline. Yeah. I wouldn't, hey, I wa I wouldn't waste it on... Institute. Yeah, I, I know. I wouldn't waste <laughs> it on this. Yeah. I'll say true. Is that your final answer? <laughs> I'll say false. It's false. Oh, it's false. yes. Tie score! Okay. So, uh, in, in, in Lent... Are you still happy you hired me, President Menes? <laughs> oh, boy. I, I am available. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> so, as, as it said, so this is from the general instruction of the Roman Missal. The playing of the organ and musical instruments is allowed during Lent only uh, to support the singing. In Advent, this is a quote, the use of the organ and other musical instruments should be marked by a moderation suited to the character of this time of year without expressing in anticipation the full joy of the nativity of the Lord. So, and incidentally, it's the same with the altar. It's forbidden to decorate the altar in Lent with flowers, with the exception of Laetare Sunday. But Advent, you can do this in moderation. So there's a little bit different. Lent, no way. Advent, use moderation. So... Sorry about that, Dennis. You should run a worship office. Yeah. What, do I get a point for that or not? No. Oh, I don't darn it. No. You, I thought you gave me a second chance. Okay. Well, Jesse's still in the lead. Yeah. Okay. So this is, we're up to uh, number six. According to the Book of Blessings, right? So this is uh, the, it's called the Rituale Romani that, that contains all of the blessings that the church uh, uses, accord, uh, that a priest can use. Uh, the book that the bishop uses is called the Pontificale Romanum. So the Rituale Romanum, or in English, the Book of Blessings. According to that, where should the nativity scene be placed inside of a church, all right? A, 
in a place outside the sanctuary so that all the faithful can approach it easily and pray before it. B, the Book of Blessings is silent on the placement of the nativity scene. C, in front of the altar of sacrifice so that suitable attention may be drawn to this central mystery of the season. Or D, outside of the church building and located in the homes of the faithful. I know that we talked about this on this podcast at some point, yeah. and I'm very frustrated with myself that I cannot remember the answer to this. Yeah. Um, do you listen to the podcast, Jesse? <laughs> not anymore. We have people that do that for us. <laughs> uh, thank you, President Minnis. Uh, I'm going to say D. Yeah, that's wrong, too. What? That's wrong, too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the correct answer is A, in a place outside the sanctuary that so that all the know. faithful can approach it easily and pray before it. So it says if the uh, manger scene, nativity scene, is yeah, in the church, it should not be placed in the, the word they use is presbyterium or sanctuary. Okay? And the question is why? Well, you don't want to overtake what's actually happening in the Mass, right? So you don't want it to be in front of the altar of sacrifice to distract from what's going on. But you want people to be able to understand what's happening during Advent and have a, a way to express the devotion. Yeah, I think that's right. It's a devotional prayer. Uh, half, praying half point? Before, what's that? Half point? No, no. <laughs> it's a devotional prayer. Yeah, and it, Dennis uses this line a lot. Is you know, one of the, it's, it's that, uh, what's his name? Uh, <laughs> anyway, H. A. Reinhold. Uh, H. A. Reinhold. Thank we you. We have one liturgical brain. I always can answer those <laughs> questions. For uh, part of the reforms of the council was putting first things first, second things second, and let the students finish. Things, things peripheral on the periphery. things on the periphery. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And an activity scene is not go. one of the first can you things give them a in bell front of the altar. Yeah. yeah. There you them. go. All right. We should get Good. a book for that, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Well, don't forget your lifelines. Yeah, okay. I'm trying to give these books away. If you would. Uh, can I have one of those for the next question? <laughs> <clears throat> All right, so let's see. Now we're up to question number uh, seven. So this is back to... Right. Back to Jesse's still in the lead. One Short, answer. Short answer. Short All answer. All right. No, this is... Uh, True, false, I guess. No, this, well, who's this to? Me. Dennis. You, okay, this well, is not... This is an open-ended question. All okay, right. let's see what I can do. What holy days of obligation on the universal calendar occur during the Advent and Christmas seasons? Or is it which holy days of obligation? And one of those. What are the holy days of obligation that appear on the universal calendar that appear during the Advent and Christmas seasons? So I have to name? You have to name them. All of them? No, just the four. Oh, okay. <laughs> that fall during the Advent and Christmas seasons. Well, Immaculate Conception would be one. That, December 8th. Yes. I think I'll phone, I'll phone my friends. Okay, all right. Do I get to right. pick one friend? Or how does this yes, work? well, there's only one book to go around. So who thinks that he or she can uh, help Dr. McNamara name the four holy days of obligation this that fall during the Advent and Christmas Active season. participation of the, of the You'll win a fabulous today. prize if you, uh, if you agree. It's Chris's He's going to get it wrong anyway, so there is no <laughs> pressure. Uh, I, have two, I have two others. Okay. No, no, we, we need a, a, a hand. Who wants to help? Dr. McNamara, name the four holy days of obligation that occur during Advent and Christmas. Okay. okay. It looks like you're on your own. Well, you <laughs> we, we can give Jessica a We can do two. Okay. All right. Jess, that's Jessica? That's Jessica. Jessica, help him out. All right. So we have Immaculate Conception, December 8th. Christmas, December 25th. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have to go to Mass that day? Yep. <laughs> yeah, even this year when Christmas is on a Saturday, you have to go to Mass twice. Everybody remember that. Okay. Month. On December 1st. Uh, so okay. January 1st? Yeah, yeah. De- January. yeah. yeah. De- January 1st, Mary, Mother of God. And there's one more. The key to this question is on the universal calendar. In that case, I believe it would be June. Yes, Jessica. <laughs> All right. So there are, uh, how, many days, how many holy days of obligation does the Pope celebrate? 18? <laughs> no. 10. 10. All right. So there's those four. Let's see. Uh, Hot shot. What are the other ones? Uh, St. Joseph on March 29th. Then uh, Ascension Thursday. Then uh, Corpus Christi. Then um, Easter. Saints Peter and Paul. (laughs) Then uh, Assumption of Mary. And then All Saints. Is that up to 10? Okay. And then Bishop's Conferences can suppress some of those. Like in the United States, St. Joseph, Saints Peter and Paul, they're gone. They can transfer some of those, so Epiphany and uh, Ascension for most of us, Corpus Christi, those were all moved to a Sunday, and so we're left with five holy days of obligation. Unless, for some of those, if they fall on a Saturday or Monday, like All Saints Day was on a Monday this last year, so it was not a holy day of obligation. Mary, Mother of God, will be Saturday, January 1st will not be a holy day of obligation, but uh, anyway, those are the four. So, Jessica, Way you to can, go, Jessica. Thank can you. take your pick of, uh, of a textbook, which I'm sure you need more textbook. Mm-hmm. Principles of Sacred I would Liturgy. hope both of those books have text, Chris, <laughs> if no, you did a, your job right. a picture book. Oh. Yeah. Or a, a devotional book. <laughs> journey into the Easter mystery. Oh, which do you recommend? They're both pretty good. Uh, <clears throat> Thank you. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks Good. to Jessica. What's the, the, the score? The score is one to one. One to one with only two questions left. This is really getting intense. <laughs> All right, number eight, back to you, Jesse. How many mass settings, in a mass setting, I mean proper antiphons, orations, and readings, are there for the solemnity of the nativity? Your options are one, two, three, or four. Four. Four is right. All right, good. What time is midnight mass? I used to work at a church. <laughs> <laughs> nine, it's, nine, it's nine o'clock this year. Okay, great. Yeah. So there, the, the Roman Missal has four different masses for Christmas. There's, uh, let's see, what do they call these? Um, uh, at the vigil mass, uh, at uh, mass during the night, at mass at dawn, and at mass during the day, right? And so each of these four masses should be used according to its proper time in the day. And then the lectionary has four different sets of readings which correspond to those masses, uh, but those you can kind of mix up a, a little bit. So if you go to Mass during the day, the reading is the prologue of St. John, and the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And I've heard people say, oh, that's boring. <laughs> you know? People want to hear about baby Jesus in the, uh, in the manger, and so they, they can mix them up a little I've bit. Told, have I told you my midnight Mass story? My- what is it? Every time somebody in my family went to Midnight Mass, they always waited. It was the same reader every year at Midnight Mass at my parish. And he was from, like, center of Chicago, thick Chicago accent. And we all just waited for him to say, and the rod of the taskmaster will be smashed. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I was like, did he say it? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Whatever gets you to pay attention. Right. <laughs> That's right. All right. Now, 
Dennis, yes. last, you need, last to, question. You need to get this right to tie. Uh, to tie. I do have a tiebreaker, too, if you well, tie. You get, oh, yeah. Well, you get another one after me because I mm-hmm. went first. Yeah. So you, you could do? win. Yeah. Oh, this is number nine. Okay. Yep. Number nine. Uh, oh, this is another tough one. At which liturgy during the Advent or Christmas seasons would one hear m- mention of, quote, the 194th Olympiad, end quote? Let me repeat that. <laughs> At, wh- at, which, liturgy, uh, at wh- li- which liturgy during Advent or Christmas would you hear mention of the 140, 194th Olympiad? So your options are A, the fifth day of the octave of uh, Christmas, B, Matins for the Feast of the Holy Family, C, Mass for the Epiphany, or D, for Dennis, Liturgy of the Hours on December 24th. Oh, my goodness. Well, I think A sounds right. Uh, <laughs> B is pretty compelling. Uh, C is a close. You know what? I'll pick D. That's right, yeah! Dennis. That's What's right. The first That's word that of is the first right. reading. Good on the job. Second Good and job. the score is tied two to two. That's right. <laughs> what in the world? Uh, what text? Has anybody heard mention of the hundred? What is it? The hundred forty-fourth Olympiad? That's in Athens next year, right? I don't know. No, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> No, so this is from what's called the uh, announcement of the solemnity of the Nativity of the Lord from the Roman Martyrology. Right, this is in the appendix of the Missal. This is a valid, legitimate That's liturgical why I didn't text. Know. I had my appendix that, removed. That, that, yeah. uh. wah, wah, wah. that almost nobody uh, ever hears. And this is how it's described: is that this text draws upon sacred scripture to declare in a formal way the birth of Christ. It begins with the creation. It relates the birth of the Lord to the major events and personages of sacred and secular history. And this particular, these events contained in the announcement help pastorally to situate the birth of Jesus in the context of salvation history, end quote. So this uh, text uh, talks about uh, the 21st century since Abraham, the 13th century uh, since Moses led the people out of Egypt, a thousand years since King David, 752 years since the founding of Rome, the 42nd year of the reign of Caesar Augustus. So this is a text, the announcement uh, of the birth of Jesus that you would hear, oh, and it's directed to take place either before the Mass on uh, Christmas Eve or during the Liturgy of the Hours on December 24th. And you know what Bishop Barron says about all these dates? Myths are long ago far away in a land far, far away in a time, time long ago. Jesus was born on a date when there was an emperor, there was a procurator, there were events, historical entry of Christ into the world. And that's what distinguishes the truth of Christianity from the generic myths of the rest of the world. So it might sound a little crazy to give something like that, uh, but you can see what the purpose is in God's plan. Jesse, it may be God's plan for you to win three to two. All right, so, yeah, we're tied right now, two to two. This is question number 10. And Jesse, this is a true or false. Yes. Okay. (laughs) True or false. The Christmas season always ends on the Sunday following Epiphany, which is the feast of the baptism of the Lord. (laughs) Well, I I might as well pull the audience, right? You have your chance. Yeah. Yeah, we got a book to give away. Okay, who out there wants to help uh, Jesse here? True or false, the Christmas season always ends on the Sunday following Epiphany, which is the feast of the baptism of the Lord. Jack is offering. (laughs) Are you just going to say true? Or do you actually know true? (laughs) 
Wait, what? Oh, I said Drew. Okay, so, so, but he was the one you picked, so you can take it or not. I am gonna say true. I'm gonna go with the the, the good news is Jack is that you just won a book. <laughs> Yeah. The bad Jack, news, I'm a victim now. The bad news, Jesse. The bad news, Jesse, is that it's false. Oh, but that is a great answer. So this is how this works. <laughs> no, this is a very tricky question. We're gonna so, need a tiebreaker now. So the uh, the the norms say that Christmas time runs from uh, first Vespers and the Nativity of the Lord up to and including the Sunday after Epiphany. Okay, which is the baptism. Sounds like it's true, right? Yeah, that's but what I was problem, doing. We were both on that same oh, page. Oh, yeah. No, no, your instincts, right, Jack? Are, Jack, are very good. It's <laughs> false because of this. Uh, back to the epiphany. If it's not celebrated as a holy day of obligation, it moves to the Sunday that falls between oh, January 2nd and January 8th. So if it has to move to January 7th or January 8th, which the Pope would be celebrating the baptism of the Lord, but we would be celebrating epiphany, we're not going to wait for another whole week for the baptism to come around. It's going to get moved, it, the baptism, to the Monday. You're a nerd, Chris. I You're know it. Nerd. Hey, hey. So uh, that was a really great answer, yeah. but I'm sorry it's wrong. Uh, all right, so we're A lot we're of tied. famous liturgy scholars have had nervous breakdowns, and you can see why exactly. To okay, try so to keep all this we, need, we need a tiebreaker here. Um, who's, uh, let's see. Do you, how do we do, go about this? Who's rock, paper, scissors to see who's going to answer this? I, I'll, uh, I'll defer. All right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm like here, the guy with the 100 here, batting average. Here you can't wait for, to come up to play. Here too. is for, uh, wow. What was gonna the be name of Jesus' <laughs> mom? <laughs> <laughs> All right. <clears throat> oh. The question is, the Epiphany Blessing of Homes with Chalk includes the letters C, M, and B. Mm -hmm. What do these letters stand for? I know conceptually. Do I have to know the actual three names? Yeah. Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar. We have a winner. Yay! We have he, de oh. he deserves it after that. Oh, I, I that would've, was great. I butchered those names. That was great. Yeah, so it stands for the names of the three wise men, Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar, or Christus Mansionem Benedicat. May Christ bless. May Christ bless this house. Christus Mansionem Benedicat. Well, good win, Dennis. Okay. Well, yeah. All right. And but you know, if he hadn't given me the D, we would have tied. So yeah. I'll, let's call it a tie. Just okay. Because I love you. <laughs> well, so. Also, I think you get to keep your job now. I think. Yeah, I hope so. That's <laughs> your prize, I think. But if you can find a job for this guy, President Minister, see, he knows his stuff. Plus, he's a lot of fun to hang around with. All right. Well, thanks. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Thanks, everybody. Um, Great. We have a couple of liturgy questions here. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church, and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition.
Mail call. Mail call. Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Okay. This question comes from uh, Post-it Note. <laughs> uh, Post-it Note says... Uh, what are the differences between the Eastern Church's Divine Liturgy and the Catholic Mass? That's what I say. Yeah, what's the difference? What's That's the a big question, right? What's the difference it's between... It's a true or false question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how do you the, like the questions yeah, now, how do you like it? Yeah. Uh, Okay, so what are the differences between the liturgies of the Eastern uh, Church? The Divine Liturgy and the... Yes. And the well, Catholic let's talk Mass. about churches, right? There are churches, yeah. and they have different kinds of names. They're, they have historical origins. So the Armenian church is often considered to be one of the oldest. It's actually formed before the Roman church. And then there are, you hear about Russian Catholics or Byzantine or Orthodox in different places. So there are different regions where Christianity settled early on and they developed their own liturgical customs. So typically there in the East would be um, a certain group and then the West is typically the Latin rite. So they develop uh, separately. And so that's why they have different particular histories, but they're not considered greater or lesser. Uh, just because they're Eastern or, or Western. So what do they always say about East and West? The East likes to start from the Platonic view of perfection. They like to have heaven coming down to earth. The West likes to start with earth and bring it up uh, to heaven. So if you study icons in the East, for instance, they always show the saint in their heavenly condition, and somehow that heavenly condition breaks into our world. In the West, we like to start with the humanity of somebody. We like pictures of uh, Carlo Kudis, and we like the photographs of um, um, Miguel, Pro. Miguel Pro being martyred in St. Therese, and then we find out about uh, their divinity. So there's this deep emphasis on the Platonic divine coming to earth in the East, and in the West, the humanity of Christ is emphasized, and then it's brought up into its um, divine fulfillment. Yeah, I think a great snapshot of this is if you've seen uh, Raphael's depiction of the school at Athens, where Plato is pointing up, and Aristotle is pointing down. Plano is the philosopher of the East on the whole, and so the divine liturgies tend to be out of this world. Uh, there's a real emphasis on the, uh, on the transcendent, whereas in the West, Aristotle's our guy. And so, like Dennis had mentioned before about you know the 144th Olympiad and all of this earthly, mundane things like that, that's, he's the philosopher of, uh, of the West. And you know, in terms of like Christology, some of you theology majors, um, remember uh, Council of, uh, what is it, um, uh, Ephesus uh, 431 in Nestorian, right? So he's, he, he made a human person out of Jesus. He was really interested in the humanity of Jesus. Well, kind of in the West, we're not heretics, we try <laughs> to be, but we, we are theologically drawn to more of a, a Christology that's very human. Our Jesus is nailed to the cross. Uh, in the East, it's more um, Council of Chalcedon in 451, monophysitism, where Jesus is leaving behind all of this human stuff, and he's, he's morphing it into some monophusis that is elevated and out of this world. And so that tends to be the trajectory of the Eastern liturgies. So in very broad strokes, those are... Uh, and if you go to an Eastern liturgy or go to an Eastern church, you'll see every square inch of the walls are covered in images, icons, gold, angels, the story of salvation history, uh, biblical scenes. The 
liturgy is typically sung completely. The vestments are very uh, sort of showy, golden, embroidered, and the ritual is very long, and it's also there's full of uh, a lot of repetitions. The Western Church, the Roman Church, is known for its noble simplicity. If you think about the prayers at Mass, we say, Father, thank you for sending Saint whoever to rescue us and, you know, to be a model for us and for Christ to rescue us. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Done, right? It's, it's Roman, it's military, it's short. Eastern Church, long repetitions. They're bowing up and down and touching the floor and touching their heads over and over and over again. I know a priest who's actually a, a bi-ritual, so the Latin Church and one of the Eastern Churches, and he said their liturgies were so long and they would get so hot. They would take three hours, four hours. They needed several deacons and they would have to come in in shifts. And they would go out in the back of the sacristy and take off all their vestments and just collapse on the couch and breathe and drink they water for a while. First, kind sure, of, because yeah, it yeah. was so long, right? That, emphasis on this kind of perfection of of the heavenly on earth uh, and then in the west we believe in that stuff too but it's very much more about how do we bring our worldly uh, existence uh, to be divinized uh, by God so in the east they love the transfiguration it's the moment on Mount Tabor when Christ becomes radiant with light we might speculate a little more on how do we get to Mount Tabor and how do we get up to Mount Tabor and why was Christ leading us there so the humanity of Christ uh, is there, of course, and then the divinity of Christ is there, of course, and then you can emphasize both without uh, denying either. Okay. All right. Do you have a uh, try this one? I think we answered this one on, on one of the other podcasts, but this we'll one ask just it says, again. How can I get a degree in liturgy? Well, <laughs> from the liturgical <laughs> institute. Uh, but seriously, go to the liturgical institute or. All right. It says, uh, during COVID, the priest does not ask us to make the sign of peace, yet people do it anyway. Should they? Ooh. Go ahead, Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think this is one of those things that the church has ever foreseen, right? Now, the sign of peace is an option, correct? Yeah, the exchange of peace between participants is an option. Right. So you don't have to make the sign of peace, even when it's not COVID time, if the priest does not invite you to make the sign of peace. Uh, you don't have to. Typically, though, if the priest is the head of the body and the head is telling the body what to do, you do it when the priest tells the body what to do. And if the head doesn't tell the body to offer the sign of peace, properly speaking, my instinct is they should not offer the sign of peace if they haven't been directed. Usually the, the people in the pews never tell the priest what to do. And they don't do things outside. It's after mass. Yeah, then they, they that, tell yeah. their opinions uh, to the priest. So my We'd have to write to Rome and get a real answer on this. Uh, but my gut says if the priest hasn't invited you, you don't do it, at least in an obvious public way. Yeah. Do you agree? Yeah, I think I do. I mean, a part of the, 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 the ingredient for liturgy to work is humility, unfortunately, because <laughs> that's, that's a hard virtue. Um, but uh, that's humility, docility, receptivity are all parts of being a, a, a saving victim, part of being a victim at mass. And you really have to check a lot of I likes at the door, preferences at the door for it to work. So I think, you know, when you go to mass, it's not about what song you like, what homily you like, what reading you like, what rubric you like, what vestment you like. It's about becoming that uh, adoring, receptive, humble recipient of the grace that God's trying to give. So. Yeah, in lack of anything definitive, I'll, uh, I'll go with that. And, you know, just to, you know, if I had to write an essay or something about this, you'd ask, what was what we call the sign of peace now? The priest says, offer each other a sign of peace. In the High Mass before Vatican II, the reforms, 
it was called offering each other the peace. The priest would kiss the altar and receive the pox, the peace, from Christ, because the altar is a symbol of Christ. Then he would give it to the deacon, he would give it to the subdeacon, and then it would pass down. So the source of the peace was Christ, and then it was passed, kind of like lighting the candles, the Easter vigil, from the uh, one candle, and then everybody has it. So to say, well, we're not being instructed from the head, we're not receiving it from the head, to do that seems just like the body kind of doing its, its own thing. But I, I don't think there's a rule. We, we'd really have to get the congregation for rights to, uh, to answer that one, as it used to be known. Now it's the congregation for divine worship. Okay, and who gives us this question Are today, we going to answer Jesse? all of these? Well, we'll these see. Are, you know, just I don't know. pick the easy ones. I'm not, <laughs> who, who gave us this question? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. All right, um, referring to Ratzinger's Spirit of the Liturgy, if true sacrifice is union with God, do you think this can uh, can open can happen without uh, radical death to self? Mm. Mm. That's what we're talking about being a victim at mass. Well, radical death to self. In my, I usually say something reasonably intelligent, and Chris swoops in and, and cleans up after me with really, and then I really make a intelligent joke. stuff. <laughs> Jesse makes a joke. Death to self doesn't mean I hate myself. It doesn't mean I want to give away everything that I have. It means I want to give my self-determination and that which is good about me, that which is weak about me, over to God to transform. So if, if you think of God as the angry God who says, die or else I won't help you unless you hate yourself, that's not what we're talking about. Think of a child and the mother or father says, you know, I want to love you. I want to teach you. I want to feed you. I want to give you a birthday present. No. I refuse this present at Christmas. No, I will take nothing from you. I will not learn from you. You see how a parent would be worried about their child, but mostly they would feel unloved. I'm offering you this opportunity to go from a three-year-old to a five-year-old to a 10-year-old to a 20-year-old to grow in my love, and you won't take it. So death to self in that sense would mean, I think, death to your self-sufficiency to say, yes, I will give up so that I can receive uh, your love. So if, is it a death to fall into the arms of your spouse? Is it a death to fall into the arms of uh, your, your, your child? Yes, you have to give up your self-sufficiency. Yeah, I'm opening my arms, and you can reject me. If I fall in the arms of Isaac, he <laughs> is right. just going to be squished. <laughs> just or he could fall in the arms of you. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, that we can do. So there's a certain death to self. I have to give up my autonomy in order to receive from the other, and it seems to be that that's... That's God's method. That's God's plan. The, the Trinity is a community. God is not a monolithic, angry, lightning bolt throwing God. It's a community of persons who love each other and are almost identical to each other, even as they're different from each other. And so I think you, it's always necessary to have a death to self to achieve union with God. What do you think, Chris? Beautifully said. I wouldn't add a word. Okay, good. Yeah. I would. Sorry. I think. Oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I do have a question about that, though. So if if the goal is to offer ourselves, and like we're not really meant for this world, we're made for uh, the kingdom of heaven. Why why are we even here? Why you know what's the what's the point of even being here if this is not even where we're supposed to be? We're supposed to be with God in the kingdom. Yeah, it's kind of like being in the womb. You know, you have to be there for nine months, but you're not not meant to stay there forever. You know, one of the, the nice things about, the consoling things about death is people who are left behind miss the person who's deceased, but the person who's deceased has now been born, hopefully, into this new and better uh, life. It's sort of like if you had a twin, and one of them was born early, and the other twin was like, I want out too, right? I want to be with And like, I couldn't be in there anymore. There's no more womb. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's interesting about time, you're asking about time, 
There's a theologian named David Fagerberg at Notre Dame who wrote a book called um, The Christian Meaning of Time. And he says, time is a creature. So anything created by God is a creature. A rock is a creature. Chris is a creature. Jesse's a creature. Everybody in this room is a creature. The angels, you know, had only an instantaneous moment to decide for or against God because they had supernatural intellect. Because we're fallen, we grow in our understanding. We grow in our maturity. We grow in our ability to say yes. So time and the life of being on earth is considered an evidence of the mercy of God, that he gives us lots of time to ponder, to contemplate, uh, to say yes. You might do stupid things when you're 17 that you might not do when you're 80 and, you know, uh, and have a terminal illness. Do stupid things all the time. Yeah, I, I know. But um, so this is why. That's you know, a, I like here. that answer. Okay, that was good. amazing. All right. Well, thank you, Jesse. I shouldn't be ringing the bell for myself. You can do it. All right. Let's see. One more question. Chris, I think this has got your name all over it. Okay. I just want to make sure I read this right because last time I messed up halfway. Okay. Why do the priest and the servers incense the altar, gospel, peoples, etc. during Mass? Hmm. Well, I think incense is you, has a, a number of meanings, but it's we incense things that are sacred and precious, and so one of those is, uh, is the altar, is the book of the Gospels, is the ministers and the people. And incense also has a, kind of a sacrificial connotation as well, so we incense the gifts, the altar, and the, the victims who are represented by and symbolized and sacramentalized by uh, the wine. And so uh, it has this, um, is it Psalm? It's some Psalm between 1 and 150 <laughs> that uh, <laughs> let my prayer rise before you like incense, like an evening oblation. Anybody know that in one? Anyway. And so it's, it's sort of a, a, um, a visual ascending of ourselves, of our sacrifice uh, to God in heaven, plus the, the coal and the incense is sort of um, like, like a candle is burned up for the sake of the, uh, for the rising. And so when you are incensed, or rather incensed, at uh, mass, it, mass, it's because um, you are meant to be that fragrant offering, that victim that is uh, rising up uh, to God in heaven. So. Right, plus the book of Revelation says the throne of, of Christ is surrounded by great bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. It says it very specifically. So we're about to use these elements in Mass um, that will be used for the prayers of the saints. Also, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies in the Temple of Solomon. You know, God's throne was the Ark of the Covenant, surrounded by clouds of incense. In fact, they didn't have self-light charcoals back then, so they had to constantly blow on the coals to keep them lit. And one of the major jobs of the priest was to blow on the coals all the time so that they could take the incense into the presence of God and be lost in this cloud. Some people think it might even have been a little bit hallucinogenic so that the visions that the priest, the high priest had of the heavenly answer of God was actually uh, coming through this sweet smell, this prayer, this cloud, right? God often appears in the Old Testament in a cloud, and so it's a symbol of God, it's a symbol of priesthood. Remember gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh is what you anoint dead bodies with, and uh, gold um, for the king. The incense is the priestly offering, and so um, these important elements of the rite, as Chris said, are the things that receive that honor and the incense, and then the prayer rises. Can you tell your story just to finish up about the uh, Easter vigil with the, cast, the candle and the incense and the pillar of cloud and the pillar of light and all that stuff. Sounds like you just did. Yeah, no, you tell the story. <laughs> we can finish well, with that. I, I think it's uh, about what they represent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So 
Um, I mentioned before the reading from uh, Mark this Sunday is about you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And the little footnote just in the NABRE Bible says that clouds, smoke, dew, shadows, rain are all foreshadows of uh, the Holy Spirit. And so in the old, uh, in, in the Exodus, the chosen people were led by, is this the one you're talking about? Okay, we're, we're led by a pillar of fire by Just night. Just go with it anyway. And a, yeah. all right, and a pillar of cloud by day. So this is the, they're led by the, the sun, the light, and the Holy Spirit. And then what we do at the Easter Vigil is we begin in darkness. And the first thing, actually what the rubrics say about for the vigil is that the minister scoops some of the coals out from the fire and he puts them in the thurible. And then the priest adds the incense, and the very first thing in the procession at the Easter Vigil is a pillar of cloud coming into the church, followed by the, pil the pillar of fire, the candle, not carried by the priest, but by a deacon or another minister. So here you are leaving the darkness and ignorance of uh, sin and death, following a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, and then comes Moses in the person of the priest, and then comes the chosen people, all of us, coming into this land flowing uh, in milk and honey. So it's this beautiful sacramental representation that is impossible without uh, incense. So um, anyway, yeah, the, the liturgy is a beautiful thing. And the more, um, you know, the more we can uh, see the meaning of these signs and symbols, the more, um, the more awesome it really is. So anyway. There okay. it is. Well, that's it. Well, thank you very yeah. much, everybody, Thanks. for being thank our you. audience. Brought to you here from Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. All right. Yeah. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoremus, the Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture and Ex Corde, both at Benedictine College. Now that's a podcast. <laughs>